Imagine if everything that encompasses, say, the Bridgewater Triangle all happened in one small town. That's what we're going to talk about tonight with our guest, Brennan Store. It's a strange little place tonight on episode 468 of Spooky South Coast. It starts right now. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. Hey, Matt. Yes, Alistair. Would, uh, <laughs> when we just ran the theme song, I still had it in program. Does that mean that we just played the Spooky South Coast theme song over the Red Sox broadcast? Yes, it does. I think we did. So people are like, wait, Spooky South Coast is starting? Yes, it is. It's starting right on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. We do this while we're waiting to go on the air on the radio, which I don't know is going to happen tonight because the Red Sox are in another rain delay in that game. So I think it's going to be a pretty much a YouTube-only show tonight. So that's that's the way we're working tonight. And you can, of course, always come and join us on the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash user slash Spooky South Coast. You can get to it right from SpookySouthCoast.com. And if you want to talk about the show... On social media, you can do so using the hashtag SpookyLive. If you want to call in, we can still take your calls even though we're on YouTube at 508-996-0500. You can call in toll free if you're living in the dark ages and don't just use a cell phone, 877-996-1420. So if you're still the one person that's, you know, got a long distance plan at home and you don't want to pay the extra. Do they still have that? Do they still have like plans that you can buy? We were talking about this this morning on my morning show. Like, like landlines? Like, can or... you, like, like landline plans from the phone company? Mm-hmm. Do they not have like all inclusive? Cause like now, you know, if you get your, your phone from your cable company, it's just like, yep, you just get phone service with it. Sorry. And you get like long distance included and all that stuff. But do they still have a thing where like you can only get local calls and you have to like pay extra for long distance service? Does that still exist? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know anybody. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't really know that many people <laughs> with a landline themselves. I said that on the radio this morning, and like a, a woman called in and was like, I'm calling you on my landline right now. And you know what? It sounded like crap. It. it really did. I wanted to be like, well, you should throw that landline away. Seems like the only people who do have a landline are the people who have um, have it bundled together with their cable and their internet. And Right. I have one, and, but I don't use and it. They, and then they're like, oh, well, we just have that because... They gave it to us. Yeah, I have one, and I never hooked the phone up to it, and I probably won't ever. So, uh, oh, hello, hello to Mexico City. Wow. It's pretty awesome. We're international okay. tonight. In the chat room on YouTube, we have somebody saying hello. Hello, Elisa, uh, saying hello to us from Mexico City. We're bad. We're worldwide tonight instead of just nationwide. That's something. Yeah, pretty excited. Well, you know, we have listeners all over the world, but the problem is it's all different times all over the world. So people don't tune in live. They listen to it later on on podcast, which, of course, we appreciate and we love. We're 
trying to set up one of those uh, Patreon, Patreon accounts, whatever, so that we can give you guys some cool rewards and let you support the show, because we need all the support we can get. Uh, coming up in a little while, we'll be joined by our guest for tonight, Brennan Store. As, uh, as I mentioned before, he's the author of a new book called A Strange Little Place, and it's all about one town in Canada, in British Columbia, where it's like every aspect of the Bridgewater Triangle has come together. And it has, just as long as this town's been around, this has been part of its history. So we're going to talk with him about that. It's his hometown, so he knows, excuse me, all about it. And uh, so we'll talk to him coming up in just a few minutes. I do want to let some people know, speaking of the Bridgewater Triangle, we decided to book the date as October 1st for this year. That'll be this year's Bridgewater Triangle show. So if you would like to take part, in that, if you're an investigator and you're local, or maybe you're not local and you want to come up for it, but if you want to take part as an investigator, reach out to me, either Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com or get a hold of me, get a hold of me on Facebook so we can start planning out who's going to be where, what teams are going to be where, and we're going to try and figure out exactly how we are going to plan this out this year because we have the opportunity now with Facebook Live and Periscope and all this stuff to have different ways of people joining in and i think we'll probably go facebook live that's probably the easiest way for most people now right that's kind of replaced periscope is right i think it, I, I think that's the uh the more i guess interactive way to do it now and so you know we'll we'll work know. on that if we, not if not let us know let yeah. us know what do you guys use what do you think would work the best right we're open to suggestions i mean we did use periscope for a little while but i think that fell to the wayside yeah it, um, I know Chad Lindbergh uses uh, Periscope all the time. All the time. I had to turn off my notifications. But, uh, people, <laughs> people still follow him. So, uh, absolutely. And uh, and something else we want to let people know about too, as well. Uh, Matt Moniz will be up at this event next weekend. It is Experiencers Speak 2016. It's happening Friday, August 26th to Saturday, August 27th in Portland, Maine. Uh, here are some of the speakers. Richard Dolan, of course, will be the MC for this event. Uh, Travis Walton will be there, Ray Hernandez, Charles Fultz, Yannick Omond, Rion de Rouen, David Chase, Eric Mitchell. So there's uh, all kinds of people coming to talk about uh, different UFOs, UFO encounters, abductions, uh, and, uh, and including focusing on the Allagash case and, of course, Travis Walton with the Fire in the Sky case, the Sasquatch people. All of these will be on the table. It will all be discussed over the course of the Experience to Speak 2016 conference. It's happening at the Fireside Inn, 81 Riverside Street in Portland, Maine. And if you want, it's the 10th anniversary, by the way, of the Starborn Support Organization, which is incredible. I remember, you know, when they came on the show to announce that they were just starting Starborn Support. And they made the announcement here on Spooky South Coast. And now they're in their 10th year, just as we are, and they have been helping countless people, and now they are putting on this Experience to Speak conference every year. So Experience to Speak 2016, Friday, August 26th to Saturday, August 27th in Portland, Maine at the Fireside Inn. For more information, go to experiencersspeak2016.blogspot.com. Or you can also go to experiencerspeak.yolasite.com, Y-O-L-A-S-A-I-T-E dot com. So if you, uh, if you go and check those sites out, you can get all the information about tickets and about trying to see if you can book a room and, uh, and everything else about the Experiences Speak conference. And <laughs> we're already getting a message from somebody on Facebook saying that they've claimed Anawan Rock. So it's yours. You were the first one out. So it's all yours. And, and Dave put it on the, uh, 
on the chat room too. So there you go. All right. Well, uh, we are certainly excited to get to, no, not, we don't have to yet. We're certainly excited to get to, uh, tonight's topic of discussion. Uh, but I do want to ask you, Matt Costa, I know that you, you said you were going to start yes. watching Stranger Things on Netflix. Have you started yet? Uh, no, there was an issue with my username and password. There is. Were you using mine? No. <laughs> oh. No. I just didn't pay my bill. Oh, okay. Well. Because I was, uh, too busy watching The Tick on, uh, Amazon Prime. Well, uh, if, you know, how's that? I don't have Amazon Prime. Uh, it was only the first episode. It wasn't, um, I hope it gets better. There was a lot of good things about it, but there was uh, a few, a few, uh, things I didn't really like. It wasn't as campy as I hoped. Oh, see? Yeah, that's I, I feel like it has to be campy. It has to be. Um, well, so, I'll see if I can, uh, never mind, I don't want to talk about illegal things, mm-hmm. like sharing Netflix passwords, right. especially now that they're cracking down on that. Uh, but there's also a new show on Netflix that I enjoyed a great deal that I think you will like. It's called The Get Down. I don't know if you've heard about this at all. No, no. It's not paranormal at all. Well, I mean, it might, it might appeal to, uh, to our audience for sure, but there's some, some interesting elements to it, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's essentially, it's about the birth of rap and hip hop. In, oh, really? in 1977 in New York, but, uh, there is a, a DJ by the name of Shaolin Fantastic. <laughs> and, I like it, yep. And he's putting together his own little crew and, uh, it's, it's, it's really good. And it has Gus from Breaking Bad. It has Jimmy Smith's. It has, uh, believe it or not, it has Jaden Smith and he doesn't annoy me. Really? Yes. That's, that's a rarity. I know. So, uh, it's certainly worth checking out if you haven't checked it out yet. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of good, um, TV coming up. I think. There is. I mean, there usually is. HBO has a new series coming out of Westworld. Really? What's that about? You ever seen oh, the, the I, movie I Westworld? I did, yeah. yeah. I remember like watching it when I was a kid. A little like Matrixy, but Wild Westy? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And so now it looks like this, this new series is going to be insane. So I'm looking forward to that. So, but I just want to put it out there. Mm. I figure I have a platform to push things. So I'm going to push the get down because it was really good. Right. It's a, and it's produced, it's produced by Boz Lerman. Like, oh. You know, the Boz Lerman, he does the, like uh, all the sunscreen guy. He did the sunscreen song, but he also directed Great Gatsby and Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge and, but yeah, no, he's also the sunscreen song guy. He, he's not the one that set that performed it. Mm-hmm. He just produced it. So, and everybody's free to wear sunscreen, right. but you know, it's Cold not, bread. Hey, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not free to watch the get down. You have to have a Netflix subscription to do so. All right. Well, do you, what do you think? Do you want to go, uh, well, we, I think we told the guests we'd call him at 1030. So we have a few moments. Okay. And, uh, let's see. Is there anything we can promote while we're promoting things? Well, well Legend Trips has that event coming up September 17th at the Houghton Mansion. I'm unable to make that one, but, uh, Jeff Belanger and Dustin Parry will be hosting it. Well, Stephanie's going to be there. I think Moniz has to miss that one because he's traveling for work, but, uh, Andy will be there and, They'll have the, you know, the run of the mill, the, the whole Houghton Mansion to themselves for the night, and they're doing a sleepover, and Jeff and Dustin are going to make breakfast for everybody afterwards. Oh, nice. And I think tickets are very limited, so you want to get yeah. on legendtrips.com and buy those as I, soon as you I can. I feel like there's uh, Swedish fish pancakes in store for <laughs> everyone there. It's quite a possibility. And, uh, and again, legendtrips.com, if you want to get tickets to that, and you can get all the information about, I think all the readings are booked up that Stephanie's doing for the night. Uh, but you can find out about, you know, staying over and spending the extra, I think it's only $30 to stay over, which is well worth it. If you're trying to get a hotel room in the area, it's insane. So, 
you know, it might be worth it just to spend the $30 extra, grab a sleeping bag and camp out and spend all night in the Houghton Mansion, one of the most insane places I've ever investigated. And I highly recommend getting out there and checking it out for yourself. And also, for those of you who don't know, August 31st will be the premiere of the Fort Tabor episode of Ghost Hunters. So on August 31st, they will air that episode. They came last summer and investigated uh, Fort Tabor and Battery Milliken, and I don't know anything about what went on. I don't know anything about the actual investigation. All I know is that they think, and this is from the episode description that's online, so I'm not really giving away any spoilers, but they think that some of the um, historical reenactments that they conduct there might have had an influence over the spirits that are still there. So that'll be on August 31st. That's one week from this coming Wednesday. We're trying to put together some kind of a viewing party. Uh, we had the idea of maybe getting into the fort itself and bringing sleeping bags and blankets and putting the episode up on a big screen. But I haven't heard from the station people here yet if we can make that happen. And I need to know from them before I can propose it to the fort. And hopefully, if we can do it, we can pull it off with enough time to get everybody out there. But I'm saying that it will it, – it, I, I just think it would be a great way to watch it, but it's going to be a great episode anyway because just seeing Fort Tabor on television – I don't know if you've seen the episode of New England Legends that uh, filmed the Jeff Belanger show on PBS, but that looked fantastic. And it really – you know, it kind of pops on screen. And speaking of Fort Tabor, the Borden Flats Light – I'm sorry, the Butler Flats Lighthouse, the new owner recently toured the lighthouse – and he's looking to make it a bed and breakfast. And I've heard that that lighthouse is haunted. We know Borden Flats is haunted because the owner, Nick Korstad, has told us when he's been over there doing work, all kinds of weird stuff happens. And now that it's a bed and breakfast, people stay there and they report weird things happening. So maybe Butler Flats will be the same thing. Maybe. They, there seems to be something about lighthouses that have, uh, I don't know if it's because it's by the water. Like it's almost surrounded by water a little bit. Well, usually. this one, this one definitely is because it's out out on one of those little islands. Right, but usually they're out le- either on like a uh, peninsula or like I'm not exactly sure what you call it, the breaker. Usually a point, something like that. Yeah, you know, it's and, always like the something point lighthouse. Right, and there's always an old man who was this lantern. Yep, spent his life yep, taking care of it there. and yep. died there, and still keeps an eye out over all the ships. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh. I think, I think we're just describing a Scooby-Doo episode. Really? Yeah, the only difference is, you know, in real life, they can't just take off the rubber mask at the end of the <laughs> nope, episode. Nope. Our ghosts are real. It's a red herring. So, uh, <laughs> so hopefully if that does get turned into a bed and breakfast too, maybe we can get out there and check that out. And, uh, you know, whether it's haunted or not, it'll be cool just to be on it. Although from some of the stuff that Nick was telling me about the foundation of it, I don't know if I want to go out there now. I want to wait until the restoration's done. He said that at certain parts of the foundation, you can, like, put your hand right through it. Like, oh, that's not oh. good. That's that's fun. He said the way that it's currently constituted, one good storm could tip that thing over. So, yeah, it's going to need some work. It's a fixer-upper that the new owner paid $80,000 for. It's not bad for our lighthouse. No, apparently not. I mean, I think, I, I want to say Nick... I don't know what the going rate is. I think Nick paid 40000 for for Borden Flats in 2010, mm-hmm. I want to say that that's what he paid forty thousand. The opening bid is usually ten to twenty five thousand, and once you put in, you know, the initial ten thousand dollar bid, sometimes it could take a long time for 
for it to even go up a little bit because people wait. And I know that Butler Flats it went through the auction process a couple of times. So, you know, you have the chance to maybe save up a little bit more and get some more loans or whatever and, and really plan things out strategically. So it's not like, you know, it's not like eBay where you have four days to make the decision and you have to wait till the auction's closing and like outbid somebody at the very end. Right. Right. So it's, you know, there's a little more of a process to it. That was always thrilling as well. It was really added. I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. I hated when I got, got outbid the, at the, the last minute. The sweaty palms and you're like, no, I'm not going to hit bid. That's why I, tr- I tried those online penny auctions. Oh my God. Those are the worst where you can get like an iPad for 45 cents. It's the worst. Yeah. I feel like, I felt like all those were a scam. They just wanted your credit card numbers. Or yeah, something. no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty positive they were. So, the, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't spend money on any of those. Maybe some people did, but I sure didn't. I never won anything. To this day, I still don't really win anything. <laughs> Nothing at all, ever. No, I mean sometimes, but never any good. And uh, and I just want to <laughs> just. Want to address the chat room questions? I am not sponsored by Chug Jug 2016, but if they want to, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. We we definitely need a beverage sponsor did, for the show. Did we miss uh, the? Um, I think that's Cumberland Farms, but did it we is. miss the Seven Eleven um, slushy J? I think we did. Yeah, Dang. I think that was a while ago. I think it's, isn't it on like July 11th? I th- I didn't know if it was last week or the uh, the coming week. But I think it was like a dollar fifty, and you could bring whatever you wanted to fill. Yeah, up, fill yeah, up yeah. I did see thing. that actually. Yeah, yeah. We did miss that. I think it did already happen. I don't know what I would bring. Hmm. Well, there were there were some limitations. I can imagine. Yeah, because I would show up with like a five gallon drum, which right. would not make any sense because it's never going to last. Especially in the summertime, it's going to melt. Mm-hmm. But still, just to get it for free, I would have done it. Do you think they would let you fill up like fishing waders? <laughs> I'm just picturing that in my head as you yeah. slosh out. That'd probably be be uh, pretty refreshing on a yeah. Uh, just wear them around your neck with a big straw. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That totally works. Uh, and I do want to address a couple of questions in the chat room, uh, Matt. If you want to get our guest Brennan Store on the phone. I'll uh, address these questions. First question is if you can buy a T-shirt from us. Not currently. These T-shirts, believe it or not, are 10 years old. Uh, they were made by Dark Side Inc. They still hold up well, and they are definitely well worth the money. We charge about $20 for each shirt. Uh, we do have to get some new ones made up. So what we'll do is we will I, – I, I've been talking with people about this because they've been asking me about this. And I put it out last year on on social media, and I didn't follow through. Uh, we'll probably take some pre-orders for the shirts and everybody can kind of, cause we don't have any money. So we'll take some pre-orders for the shirts and then we'll order them. We'll have Vinny print them up and it'll probably take, you know, six to eight weeks to be able to get them printed up and shipped out because, uh, especially this time of year because Vin's crazy busy with all the paranormal events that come up doing all t-shirts for them. Uh, but we'll get them made up and we will get them shipped out to everybody. So we'll put that information up there. And we'll get it out there because people do want the shirts and we want to make sure that we get them out there. And then the the other question came from Corey asking if the type of rock in the foundation or the type of rock in the ground influences paranormal activity. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, there is, as, as um, somebody mentioned in the chat room, the stone tape theory, the idea that the rocks will record 
the paranormal energies. And what we have found out is that quartz is a very good conductor of paranormal energy because it's a very good recorder of energy overall. That's why we use it in electronic devices. And it has what's called piezoelectric properties. So basically what ends up happening is a lot of these places around here, especially in the south coast of Massachusetts, everything was built with fieldstone. The older buildings were all built with fieldstone, which was rich in quartz. And now some of the more modern stuff built with granite, which is rich, rich in quartz. So you have that all in these foundations of these buildings. And so that's what's kind of record, recording and amplifying the paranormal energy. It doesn't cause it, but it just helps us to be able to uh, both experience it and to have it have repeatability as well. So those that's kind of my little bit of theory on the rocks and the paranormal. So, back, Matt, you have no idea what I said, but just tell me that I'm right. Uh, you are correct. Thank you. Anything about rocks? <laughs> We're all for rock talk here. And uh, and speaking of talk, we have our guest for the evening joining us on the phone line. He is the author of the new book, A Strange Little Place, and, and uh, we will have links up to it. It's just coming out now, so you'll be able to pick it up and purchase it. But you can check out his website as well, largelythetruth.com. Uh, and our guest tonight, he is a journalist, uh, he is a blogger who has now followed his passion for the paranormal into the publication of A Strange Little Place, The Haunting, Hauntings and Unexplained Events of One Small Town. It's coming out now from Llewellyn Worldwide, and he joins us on the phone right now, Brennan Store. Good evening, Brennan, how are you? I'm well, thank you, how are you? We are spooktacular, as we say here. And, uh, I was, <laughs> I was reading over your bio, and, you you originally started with a restaurant blog? I did. I got to ask you, though, did you have to pay out of your own pocket to go out to all the different restaurants? Oh, I sure did. Oh, see, that's the wrong way to do it. You got you gotta get <laughs> you got to get somebody else to foot the bill. See, I've always tried to figure out how to do that, and I never quite got there. That's, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I've stopped writing about food and, and travel writing a little bit less because uh, you know it gets expensive. Yeah, you just can't afford it. I spent 10 years as a, as a restaurant critic for the local paper. And it didn't pay well, but you know it was worth it for the fringe benefits. Oh, I, be- I believe it. Yeah, no, this was, uh, the, yeah, no, this paid lousy, and and in fact was quite expensive. And I find though, though, out of everything that you could write about, and sure, you know, the new book is coming out, and and it's it's all about the paranormal, and the paranormal has a great amount of audience. But out of, I'm a sports writer. That's the main right. thing that I do for the newspaper. So I cover the New England Patriots. I cover the Boston Celtics. I, I've written a couple of books myself on the paranormal. Nobody has ever read anything that I've written as much as they have those restaurant reviews that I wrote. Though nothing has ever gotten as much readership and as much response and controversy as writing about restaurants. Oh, absolutely. The the single most popular piece of social media I have put out into this world was, and, and I'm not kidding, it was a, a picture of a Costco hot dog. <laughs> I had people from literally Georgia saying, "Boy, that looks good." So I mean, and, but it, and was, I thought, it was positive responses, though mostly. Oh, positive responses! Everyone was was very pro hot dog. You know, they thought the hot dog was tremendous. But I really, I, I thought, who? Someone had to take the time to maneuver their hands across a keyboard to comment on a stranger's picture of a hot dog. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, it takes all kinds in this world, that's for sure. My my most controversial thing I've ever written to this day, doesn't matter what I've written about Bill Belichick or Tom Brady or the existence of ghosts or any of that stuff, the most controversial thing I ever wrote was a complaint that I just kind of dropped in as an offhand thing in a, in a review about why do restaurants charge so much 
for sodas and not give free refills when I know it only costs them pennies to fill that cup up. And I got so much hate mail from people over that. Hate mail, really? I, I just thought people would be on board with that. Oh, people were telling me I was just a fat ass and that, you know, <laughs> if I was that thirsty, I should stay home and maybe I should try drinking water. And, oh, man, there was, there was a lot of backlash about that. God, man, that's a, that's a nerve. I had no idea. So that's before we go any further with this conversation, I have to ask you, what's your stance on refills on sodas at a restaurant? I am pro-refill. All right. Well, then we can continue on. <laughs> I mean, the, the syrup costs pennies. Come on. It really does. I mean, it's, it's, and, and even if you talk to like, cause, you know, I'm, I'm in the restaurant business. I'm in food service. You talk to the, uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever, and they tell you, you know, we recommend that you fill the glass up three quarters of the way with ice. So they're even telling you, like, we don't want you to give them a lot of our product. You know, we want them, it's, it's ideally served over three quarters of a glass of ice. So it's literally pennies to fill that cup up. No, that that's it. And, and I, I suppose if, if a customer is, you know, if they're filling that thing five or ten times, and oh, all right, fine. You know, there's the door, buddy. But uh, I think two or three, if you're, uh, you know, you're paying for a meal or something, I, I don't see the harm there. Yeah, I agree. But uh, you know, we 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 talk about the hard hitting and the important issues here on Spooky South Coast. So, well, you know, you got to nail these things down before you tackle anything else, because otherwise, you don't have a solid bedrock. I think we have. You know, pretty much uh, put that controversy to rest for tonight. Now we can move into the book, A Strange Little Place. And I can tell you, you know, people love, people that listen to this show, they love when we focus on, you know, one case. We can talk about overarching themes in the paranormal. We can talk about, you know, different concepts and different theories. But what ends up really getting people excited and getting them interested is when we talk about maybe one particular haunting of one particular house. But it seems like this town, your hometown, has an amalgamation of everything paranormal happening in it. As, as I said earlier in the show, it's like the Bridgewater Triangle all kind of concentrated into one little town. It, it really is, and it, uh, it staggered me. Uh, I started this as sort of a, a family history project to record the, the spooky stories that my family used to tell from the house they grew up in, and it, it just it spread. It, uh, as we went from, from ghosts to UFOs to gremlins to shadow people to missing time and Sasquatch. And I, I didn't know what to make of it because I started this whole thing as a very uh, reluctant. I was I was an atheist. I mean, I, I was. Uh, my grandmother tried to raise me Catholic. It, it didn't take real well, and so I, I thought, well, I have too many questions for this. I thought the world is what I see in front of me, and and that's the end. But as more and more of these things popped up, and of course I had my own experiences, and then certain memories came back, which I had, I, I won't say suppressed, but just forgotten about. And I thought, wow, this is a this is, this is really hard to quantify, and it's uh, it's a real mess of stuff. Well, when you started, you know, I mean, this came about. So I'm going to keep hitting my microphone because our our YouTube viewers have asked me to move it out of my face, and now it's where I like to swing my hands around. Uh, so when you, I mean, this is this isn't something that was. I'm going to sit down and write a book. And what can I write a book about? This is a story that began for you over the course of your entire life and almost compelled you to finally, you know, pick up the, the pen and paper or the keyboard and, and put this in book form. This is something that you actually grew up surrounded by. Well, you know, it, growing up, it was not really a factor. Um, I didn't realize until starting the book that, that most of these stories existed. I, I think I actually say in the book, uh, until I started writing this book, 95% of these stories were unknown even to me. Mm-hmm. And I lived there for the first 24 years of my life. But you were aware so that there was, was, you know, there was some undercurrent of tales happening in your hometown. I had no idea. Really? I was blissfully ignorant. I, it was just not something that, again, my family were not religious. And most of these stories were told when everyone had a few drinks in them. 
so it was just something that kind of came up and then passed like a you know sort of a spring storm and, and we just never really focused on it so it never never occurred to me a that it existed or b that it had any substance uh but it was very much um just sort of uh, no, i know i hadn't planned on on writing a book i mean as a blogger anything beyond a thousand words seemed like a marathon oh, you know, I, I couldn't even commit to a tattoo i thought the idea of writing a book seems just insurmountable so uh but you no know, it, it just grew into this thought that was in my head saying oh, i wonder if this could be a book and three years later uh, research and phone calls and a lot of digging through microfilms and, and talking to people on the phone and in person. It's a book. Yeah, well, no one's more surprised than I am. I think you mentioned in the book too. You say that it was, you know, the idea was that maybe it would start off as, as, a, as an article or as a blog post or something, and it just turned into so much more as you turned over more stones. And and that's what ends up happening with a lot of these tales is you find out not only is there, you know, maybe multiple sightings and multiple experiences, but then that beget something else and then that all ties in together and you start to see kind of the forest for the trees and there's there's commonalities and connections between these stories absolutely and and that's that's really what happened and sort of at, at the same time i was learning about about the paranormal so i i was i read about 45 50 books on the subject over the course of the three years that i was working on the book just trying to make sense of these things i was hearing because you know again coming to this as a as a total newbie to the paranormal i thought what is, what are these things? You know, what is a baseline that makes sense? And, and I didn't understand whether, you know, someone telling me that they saw, they heard footsteps. Or, again, we have cases of these little little tiny shadow people that they call gremlins. And I thought, well, is there precedent for this? Have other people reported this? And after a lot of reading, I came to understand, okay, there is. And, and that's over time I realized these things have to be related in some way. It, it just seems so unlikely that you'd have such a variety of activity in one place without it being related. I mean, let's give kind of, and, and of course, the town we're talking about is your hometown of Revelstoke, British Columbia. Is that the correct pronunciation? Absolutely, yep. Revelstoke, British Columbia. It's up in the uh, the Pacific Northwest. I like to say about halfway between the cities of Vancouver and Calgary, just north of Spokane, Washington. But well, I'd say about four hours northwest of Spokane, Washington. And give people kind of an idea, you know, because to to us, especially here in New England, you know, we all have kind of preconceived notions of, uh, about what Canada is like. But, you know, what what is it like up there? What, how would you describe uh, the area and, and the town in particular? Revelstoke is, is actually a lot like, I would say, some small towns in, in New England in that it's, except it is, uh, it's isolated. It is on what's called our, our Trans-Canada Highway, you know, the, the, the single sort of, uh, the major highway that connects all of Canada, but it's it's relatively remote. It's 45 minutes to the west before you hit another town. Uh, to the east, it's an hour and a half. And the road north and south both dead end and reservoirs. So it's 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 kind of isolated. And it's it's a standard. It's a very much a working class town that's changed a little bit in recent years with the development of the ski hill. But certainly when I was growing up there, the major employers were the railroad, the Canadian Pacific Railroad. And the forest and forestry. We have two sawmills, and uh, for the very long time, that was that was Revelstoke. And um, its population hasn't risen risen above 7,500, I think, in about 10 years. I think it sits at about 7,200 right now. The biggest boom time maybe was about 10,000. That was in the 1980s when they were building the dam just north of the city. So it's it's a lot like uh, your your sort of standard working class town. Um, and most people living there are not prone to these kind of things. You know, it, it was uh, it was really strange or surprising for me to hear some of the stories I did, stories of like, generational haunting 
from people who work for the power company, from people, you know, from homemakers, people who are not inclined to what one, uh, what the daughter of one person, or sorry, the son of one interview subject referred to as flights of fancy. These are very matter-of-fact people who don't go around making stories and certainly don't want attention. So it, it was very... It was surprising to hear these stories from some of those people. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what is the, you know, what is kind of the 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 character and the mindset of the population overall? I mean, it's in some areas, you know, you have uh, cultural and 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 different ethnic influences that will maybe make some areas more conducive to having these kind of stories. But it sounds like Revelstoke is the kind of people that are, you know. First of all, if something like this happened to them, they would they would really have to go through a real personal crisis as to whether or not they believe that it actually happened. And then if it did, they sure as hell aren't going to tell anybody about it. That's it. I uh, a number of the stories in the book are attributed to um, pseudonyms because people didn't want to be associated with what what they had experienced because they had positions in the community, they had uh, you know jobs, things like this, and uh, that was that was a common thread. And so it's and it's still very much like that. Again, it's turning a little bit. We've had a, a major influx of people with the development of the ski hill, but it's still fairly conservative. It's still very small town, and yeah, people are not inclined to air these kinds of things in public. So then, if that's the case, I mean, as you said, you know, you started getting some inklings of this to, to start to put it together. How did the process come about to to first start collecting these stories? Essentially, I I was connected uh, when my family. As it turned out, my family stories, which were what I first began researching. Um, they uh, they didn't remember most of them. It was it was a little bit of a kick in the pants. They said, "Well, you know, we can't we can't recall most of those stories, but we know someone who has other ghost stories." And so they connected me to a friend of theirs, actually to to Susan Kincaid, who was uh, she's a local resident who was hugely hugely helpful in uh, in connecting me to other people. And and that's essentially how it happened. It went from person to person to person, and it was a, it was it was a uh, you know, it was a slog at times because, again, I live in Victoria, which is on the coast. So it's a about a six-hour drive plus a two-hour ferry ride for me to go back to Revelstoke. And, uh, you know, it's an expensive ferry ride. So it was sort of going back in two, two-week chunks when I could get time off work and just connecting, yeah, from person to person to person. Periodically, I would stumble across things in the provincial archive, old newspapers on microfilm. I would find a reference to a particular story. Uh, sometimes in historical web posts, you know, if you go way back in the old web, there's a few anecdotal reports which included people's names, so I chased them up. Uh, you know, and, and in many cases, people had moved. Some people had relocated to, for example, there was a fellow in Arizona who was very helpful. Uh, people back east, uh, say in Montreal and uh, in Ontario, uh, people up in, way up in northern BC. So it was really just a, a very slow progression of. of gaining people's trust by treating them with respect and then hoping they would connect me to someone else. And in some cases, I, I would hear about locations. And this was probably the most difficult thing to do because I started this out as a pretty insular dude. I would hear that a particular house had a history of haunting, so I would go knock on the door and say, hey, I hear sometimes the dead guy floats across your living room and, <laughs> and, and try to see what happens when, they, when, when I ask. Did you get a lot of doors slammed in your face, or were people, you know, uh, reciprocal to that? There were no doors slammed. There were some, uh, you know, there were some side, sideways glances, uh, and mostly people said, "No, we haven't experienced anything like that." One family was, I, I would say, they were, they were, they didn't slam the door in my face, but they were very, very curt. You know, they said, "We, we don't want to talk about it. It was a particular incident that had really frightened their kids." They said it frightened our kids at the time. We don't want to revisit it. Uh, so we're not interested in having that conversation. But they were they were polite about it. 
but they were firm. So mostly people were very good. I, I've, I've had more resistance, uh, you know, doing some research here on the coast, but I think that's just because I'm more of a stranger here. I mean, in Revelstoke, it, it helped that I lived again for the first 24 years of my life there. Well, and, my, and my family's been there for the better part of 100 years. I was going to ask that. Do you think that somebody else, do you think an outsider could have came, come in and gotten anybody to open up and share some of these stories? You know, even if it was somebody who is a, a, you know, a noted paranormal researcher, somebody that they might have seen on TV, do you think somebody could have come, come in and been able to chronicle these stories? I very much doubt it. I, I very much doubt it. Again, this, this, a lot of the connections were from people who I, uh, who I either knew personally or who I was connected to by someone I knew personally or someone my family knew personally. So I, I think that it would have been uh, one. I don't think an outsider would have had a reason to do it because I don't think they would have been. I don't think there would be any clue that there was this volume of, of paranormal activity in Revelstoke. And two, yeah, I think they would have had a hard time making the connections. I, I think now, uh, and what I'd love to see is more people taking an interest in Revelstoke and in the paranormal history of the town and developing that further. You know, I, I've had more people contact me since the book came out on August eighth um, than I had in the first year. Uh, of trying to trying to put together information, people with saying people with information about their houses or their families, and, and again, people I know, but people who had been hanging on to information because they, they just weren't sure if I was for real. They knew me, but it's one thing to say I'm writing a book, and it's another thing to actually you know follow through and do it. Right, and well, the other thing too is, you know, there's the implications too that you have a, a love and a respect for your hometown, and you're going to make sure that you know people aren't portrayed in a negative light. I mean, I go through that with you know, say, sports writing here. A lot of the times, like my hometown where I live, you know, they're very sensitive to some of the outside opinions of the town, and so they'll say, you know, we want to give you the story because we know you're going to quote unquote handle it right. And, and I'm right. sure that that's the way that a lot of people felt to you with, uh, with what you were dealing with, that they know that you would handle it right if they were going to share this story. Absolutely. Or at least I'd like to think so, at least, you know, if I may be, you know, egotistical for a moment. I'd like to think that that was, that was the idea. They thought I would, uh, handle it with respect and not, uh, well, not, not screw it up. But then again, you also have the, the other side of that coin where if they have been tight-lipped about these stories for so long, they probably don't want to suddenly see, you know, film crews and documentarians and other researchers showing up in their little town either. There is that too. And, uh, I, I'm sure if, if people do begin taking an interest in Revelstoke in this light, uh, there will no doubt be people who are displeased by that. But, uh, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm hoping that this will open people up and allow them to express some of these things which they've been sitting on, and, and hopefully it'll lead to a greater understanding of why these things happen. Because uh, one question I'm asked quite often is, why Revelstoke? What's special about Revelstoke? And I would love to be able to weigh in with some, uh, you know, very, very complex, deeply thought-out theory that explains, uh, you know, the entirety of these these phenomena, but I, I really have no idea. I, uh, I, you know, no more than anyone else, at least. I, I've heard theories, but nothing that rings wholly true to me. So I, I'd love to think that over time, perhaps this can be a place like uh, like a Sedona, where people people feel drawn to and try to unravel. Maybe it'll open the place up a bit, or maybe it doesn't want to be opened up, and this will be something that passes very quickly. It's hard to say. It's a well, it's a strange strange little place. Well, we, we, I mean, we were talking uh, as we were getting you on the line. Uh, somebody had asked a question in the YouTube chat room, and they had asked about you know if if rock holds paranormal activity and if it plays a part in paranormal activity and certainly there's geological factors that help influence this and I'm I'm sure you know Revelstoke has a lot of these factors going for it but at the same time I I've always felt that people have to be receptive 
to the paranormal for it to keep in, uh, occurring as well. But it seems like overall, you know, Revelstoke is a town where people might not have been receptive to it, and it was still happening anyway. Oh, absolutely. There, there's a chapter in the book called In the Mountain's Shadow, which talks about a house uh, where which a young woman bought a couple of years ago where she's had some, some really dramatic activity. Not, not dramatic to the point where I think it's nonsense, but very, very active things have happened. You know, physical manipulation of, for example, a, a manually operated record player began working in the night on its own. Now, the record was on there, but the needle was up. But it, it, it turned itself on. I mean, that's, that's, that's a pretty dramatic thing because you're talking about physical manipulation of, of objects. That house is a house, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time there. My one of my friends, his stepfather owned it, and we used to. His stepfather worked in the mines, and we would go over there and make use of his giant television to play video games. And I spent countless days in that house, never had any clue that there was any kind of activity there whatsoever. And yet, here we have this chapter in the Mountain Shadow, which talks about very, very dramatic and likely old activity in that house. I was totally unaware. Now, and you describe the the town and its physical features and you mentioned the mountains are the mountains surrounded or is it just on one side of the town oh no the mountain the town is surrounded by mountains we are uh i believe we have i think the highest is nine thousand feet and they are yeah we are surrounded by by peaks um i think the ski hill itself has about 7500 feet of vertical drop so you've got uh, a lot of mountain showing it feels very hemmed in so and and certainly the you know the stone the stone tape theory the idea that Stone can record energy and play it back. Uh, you know, I would certainly not take much convincing for at least some of these activities. Things like uh, the courthouse, where people have heard uh, cleaning crew at night have heard voices and chains and things like this, which could very well be past activity replaying over and over. I, I would have no problem believing that. But still, though, other activity. I was going to say that only accounts for the you know the residual activity. It doesn't really account for things that are intelligent and interactive. No, exactly. So as I say, it would, it would account for part of the part of the activity, but but not all of it, not by not by a long shot. Well, uh, you know, we're coming up in the last few minutes of this hour, and I don't know. Do we need? We don't need to stop, right, Matt Costa? If the all right, so we don't have to take. I like this. I like this YouTube only streaming. See, we're on an actual terrestrial station here uh, on the south coast of Massachusetts, but our our station runs the Red Sox games. And there was oh, two okay. two rain delays in tonight's game, so we wouldn't have been able to get on the air. So we would have had to cancel the show completely, except now we have, oh. with our YouTube channel, the ability to stream over YouTube. So now we can keep going, but the cool thing is it means we don't have to stop for commercials, we don't have to stop for the news, so we can just keep the conversation going the whole time. Oh, that's fantastic. Whereabouts in uh, New England are you based? Basically, we are uh, right about at the uh, – we're on Buzzards Bay, uh, so right near Cape Cod, if you're familiar with Cape Cod oh, okay. at all. Yeah, so yeah. about about forty miles from Providence and forty miles from Boston. So, oh, okay, yeah. About in uh, late twenty fourteen, I helped a friend move from uh, from Austin, Texas, to Boston, and we passed through uh, like New Bedford. We spent a yep. couple a day in Cape Cod because we had some time to kill. Spent a night at the Lizzie Borden House in Fall River. Yep, that's where we are. We're in we're just outside of New Bedford. We're the next town over, and uh, and we have spent many many nights at Lizzie Borden's. Did anything happen to you while you were there? Uh, no, well, I actually, had, I did have an interesting experience there. It wasn't necessarily something that happened to me, but what happened was, as you know, you get there and you drop your gear off and then you, you get, you come back for the tour at eight. So we got there and we dropped our gear off. We were on the third floor and on the second floor landing, I thought I saw someone in the bedroom at the end of the hall turn to say hi and there was no one there. Hmm. 
So I, I thought, well, that's I must have imagined this. Because, again, I, in the daytime, it's hard for me to really believe these things, for me to say, oh, I saw a spirit, because that just sounds like the goofiest thing possible. Uh, you know, at nighttime, these things make much more sense. So we, we left the house, went for dinner, came back for the tour, and afterward, everyone was sitting in the lounge, and except for one fellow uh, who was sitting in the parlor by himself on his phone. And his girlfriend was sitting with us, and she said that the last time they stayed there, they had seen a ghost of a little boy run out of their room on the third floor. And, of course, I thought, oh, good, that's where we are. Fantastic. And she, she was telling the story, and I, I thought it was curious that she was telling the story, not him. So after a little while, I... I, I, I excused myself and went to, had a chat, went to have a chat with him. And it took a little while to draw him out, but eventually he told me that he sees the dead on a regular basis. Oh, wow. He, it's simply part of his life. He's come to, to a degree, he's come to accept it, but it frightens him because it appears as though they want something and he doesn't know how to help them. So we, we talked a little further. We ended up going into the dining room to chat. And eventually, everyone else came in and said they were going to be setting up a Ouija board, and would we like to come? Both of us declined. Uh, you, even if uh, I think even if they don't really have a, a connection to the other side, and I, I think they do, but even if they don't, I think they have a very powerful psychological effect, and I can be a bit, bit of a worry wart. So I thought, nope, we're, I'm good. You know, I, I'm Catholic or ostensibly Catholic, so I, I, you know, I, I will avoid this. So the this fellow and I were talking, and. Moment, I would say about 20 minutes later, I felt the air pressure change. It was like everything got heavier, and I started seeing these white streaks out of the corners of my eye. And I said to this fellow, I said, they've started, haven't they? And he said, oh, yeah. Yeah, they've started. Hmm. And he told me that he believed there is something there, but it's not the Bordens, it's not in any way related to them, is in fact not human and never has been. He believes that it is some kind of elemental entity which feeds off the energy of people who go there to be scared. I would agree with that one thousand percent. Fascinating. That's so we we talked. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say in in all the years that I've been researching that and investigating there, that's the conclusion I've come to as well. Interesting. Yeah. So that that was his take on it. And so we we spoke for a while, and eventually the Ouija board people came back downstairs. They hadn't turned up anything. And uh, his girlfriend took him away to bed. It was about one in the morning now, and he, he looked at me and said, "Are, are you go- you coming?" I told him, "No, I'm, I'm going to stay down here for a few minutes. I want to call my wife back back in BC, let her know how things went today." And he gave me a look then and said, "Are you sure?" I said, "I'll be fine. It's uh, I'm not worried about it." So he went upstairs, and I talked to my wife, and really everything was fine. The lights were off, but it wasn't creepy. I wasn't worried at all. However, I decided to send her some pictures while we were chatting. But every time I tried to take a picture with my phone, the shutter wouldn't fire. The app would crash. The photo app would crash every time. And eventually I started to get really annoyed because I thought, this phone's got to last me for however long my contract is. If this thing is is broken, I'm I'm, I'm booped because I can't afford a new phone. And it, it just went on and on and on. Finally, we finished our conversation. And I wandered around the house just trying to take pictures. Nothing would work. Finally, up, well, I went up to the third floor, and there was one room that was empty. I, I believe it's a little room at the, towards the top of the stairs, the smallest room on the third floor. And I, I said in frustration, man, I just want to take one picture. Just let me take one picture. 
and I hit the shutter, and it fired. The picture was entirely gray, but it fired. Hmm. And after that, it, it did the same thing again. It crashed every time, so I thought, heck with it, I'm, I'm going to bed. The next morning, same thing. Camera wouldn't work, couldn't take a picture, and I, I, I was really annoyed. So I thought, to heck with it. Left the house to pack up the car, and I just had a feeling. So I turned around to look at the house. I was about 30 feet away. I pulled out my phone, pointed the camera, hit the shutter, took a picture just fine. <laughs> well. So I, it's, you know, it, it sounds like a, like a strange thing, but for whatever reason, uh, it, my, that house did not want me taking pictures inside. And, and I can tell you that I've experienced that. My my own video camera, I stopped bringing it with me because I would charge it up in the kitchen. It would be 100%. I'd walk down to the basement. It would drop to 50% battery immediately. I'd go back upstairs. It'd be back to 100%. It was like every time I got to these certain areas, you know, power would drain, film would go bad, uh, batteries would die, and it, it just seemed like it was the same thing, you know, just messing with stuff so that I couldn't document what was going on. And that's yeah, that that fascinates me. Uh, one of the chapters in the book, the haunting of Holton House, there was a reporter who did a feature on Holton House back in the nineties. Now Holton House is, I think, one of our older houses. It, it, it was built in eighteen ninety seven, and is the most storied haunted house in town. A lot of the stories are false, as I learned, but it still has a history of haunting going back at least as far as the nineteen fifties. And that reporter interviewed all these people about the house, and every tape in the house was corrupted. Every, every interview he recorded in the house was corrupted. Sections of the tape which were recorded outside the house on the same tape were fine. But everything he recorded inside the house could not be played back. So strange. And, so, and it's easy, it's like the easiest way too for, for an entity to kind of reach out and let you know that it's there is by manipulating whatever you're bringing in there, whatever your equipment you're trying to use. It, it seems to be. Is that something you've encountered in other places, that kind of equipment interference? Oh, yeah. I mean, it seems like no matter where we go, like uh, we run paranormal events and we tell people all the time, like, you bring extra batteries, we bring extra batteries, because it, it is amazing how quickly things will die. And I don't know if it's that there's definitely some sort of uh, outside, you know, spiritual influence that's causing that to happen, or maybe it's something that we collectively as human beings are somehow causing to happen, but something is pulling that energy out of those devices and out of those batteries because it happens more often than not. And there's no real reason why it should happen. If I've fully charged everything, you know, there's no reason why I should go and use it in one room and the batteries would drain faster than it would in another room. No, that's it. it, it there's no, no rational explanation for it that I can think of. But that's all right because it's, if there's an irrational explanation, I'll take that one too. <laughs> I'm all about irrational explanations. So uh, getting back to, to Revelstoke and, and some of the actual particular hauntings that happened there, uh, you know, the courthouse seems to be kind of a, a center of activity. Is there anything about that place that makes it, you know, a, a unique paranormal draw? That, that's the question. It, it certainly, it, it, geographically, it is unique in that it, it is a, if you were to take all the houses away, it's a plateau. It, it, it overlooks the part of town referred to as Lower Town which is the, the original settlement, which was uh, established, I think, about in 1885 as a supply route for the railroad. But that area is a very flat, uh, yeah, to say it's a plateau, so I, it's unique in that respect. But we really have no idea what makes it special, what makes that part of town so clustered, because certainly it is, that, that's the, the largest, and I should say the densest cluster of hauntings I, I could find. 
Yeah, there's the courthouse. There's the house across from it, the house behind it. Uh, and those are things in the book. I have anecdotal reports from other houses immediately around it. Mm-hmm. The very first hospital, which was uh, also built in 1897, is a stone's throw away. Holton House is a stone's throw away. And just a little bit further is a little park where, as a kid, I, I spent a lot of time. And a couple of years ago, I took my little niece there. She's, well, she's, um, I believe she'll be six this year. But at the time, she was about four. And I was pushing her on the spring, on the swings one day, and, and she was looking up at a tree and talking. And uh, she was saying strange things, things like, it's too late for us. It's too late for mommy. It's too late for me. And eventually I said, sweetie, who are you talking to? And as she swung, she, she said, almost under her breath, ghost. And I said, okay. So I just kept pushing her. I thought, well, I'm not going to make a scene of it. Clearly she's, she's concerned about this. And maybe a minute later she said, I'm scared. Can we go? So, of course, I, I bundled her into the car and, and off we went to a different park. But the place that happened was, again, uh, a stone's throw from, from Holton House and from the courthouse. So it, it's, of course, been suggested that maybe it was a, a burial ground for the First Nations people who lived in that area. But as someone joked to me, if that's the case, then why aren't we seeing a lot of, a lot of First Nations ghosts? You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, people from that era floating around instead of random people or shadow people. And so I wonder, and in the book I, I mentioned this, and this is, of course, this is a theory a lot of other people have proposed, if, if we are to believe that there are other realities, other dimensions, other worlds given over to the, the, the dead and, and, and other things, maybe there are spots which are thinner than others. And maybe Courthouse Square, it just happens to be one of these thin spots where things can come through and it's, it's any number of things. Because, again, we've got stories of shadow people there. We've got stories of, 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 of ghosts, strange stories of, 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 a, of a mute girl who appears to be screaming but cannot be heard. So it's, it's hard to say, but I, I wonder if, again, if there are such things as thin, thin spots, maybe Courthouse Square is one of them. And maybe Revelstoke, on the whole, is one of them. Well, and that, it's just thinner. That seems to be the case, though, is that, you know... There are some of those places and, and, and I think that we're kind of drawn to them as people too. So, you know, you say, is it just a coincidence maybe that, you know, they built the courthouse and, and developed this courthouse square around this thin spot, but maybe people are drawn to that and that's why it should be a place where people gather because that is also a place where that veil is a little bit thinner. Absolutely. I mean, that, that would make, that would make a lot of sense. As for Rollstoke on the whole, it's almost the opposite. It's almost like the town has intentionally or otherwise avoided the spotlight i mean uh, prior to prior to the first world war revelstoke was actually intended to be uh, you know a, a, an important place you know it was um i think it was one of the largest cities in the interior of the province at the time this is again prior to the outbreak of the first world war and our, our courthouse is reflective of that for a t- for a town of our size it's massive it's this grand neoclassical building with with enormous uh, doric columns made from marble and it, it just doesn't fit with the surroundings. But again, prior to the outbreak of the war, we had uh, we had department buildings, we had or sorry, department stores, we had an enormous YMCA. But when the First World War hit, uh, between 600 and 1,000 young Revelstoke men, which for a town which at that time had a population of about 6,000, was substantial, they went away to fight. And I believe more than 100 of them were killed in combat. And that just seems to have taken something tangible, sorry, intangible, but very real from the town. And then whatever was left, the depression finished. 
And ever since then, the Revelstoke has, again, just time and time come close to being uh, a real place of, of, of note. And then, I should say, uh, events have just conspired or, or happened in such a way to make that not happen. And, and that's honestly part of me thinks that's what's going to happen as far as its its notoriety as a, as a paranormal hotspot. I think it will crest, and I think it will ebb, and I think part of me makes maybe thinks the town wants it that way. You know, whatever whatever is there, whatever force exists there, is not looking for attention. And I, that could just be me, but that's that's sort of a very it's an idea I've been toying with lately. Well, I, I mean, I feel too though that when you do have these you know places that people are drawn to. Uh, or that places where people gather, they, they do have an in, influence on that. And they do, like, I think we could probably go out and create, I don't want to say a paranormal vortex. I don't want to say something with all different types of activity, but we could probably go out and create a haunted house by going there and putting enough focus in there and putting enough people wanting to gather around and wanting it to be haunted. I think Lizzie Borden's is a great example of that, a place that might not actually have had any hauntings at all because that's what we hear from the family that lived there before until people started going there and expecting it to be haunted. And by putting on that level of, of, of commitment to it being haunted, that kind of allows for it to, that maybe we're actually chipping away at that veil and maybe we're actually digging that hole between this world and the next or, or this dimension and the next or however you want to look at it. And that absolutely could be. I mean, the idea of of, uh, of intention I always find fascinating. You can you can charge an object a certain way by it simply intending it. So maybe on a larger scale, that's what we're doing by by intending it. We are, yeah, we're cre- we're out creating that opportunity for things to to manifest there. And of course, it begs the question of whether we are creating those things or whether our energy is simply drawing them there. And you mean creating them by you know like kind of putting them out there into the world as thought projections. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm very mixed on the Tulpa idea. I, I, I tend to think it's uh, sort of a, a, an invoke handy way to explain away certain phenomena. But I do wonder sometimes if simply we can manifest things simply through the power of thought. I mean, if you look at the Dybbuk box, you know, that the case of the Dybbuk box, mm-hmm. which ultimately was proven to be um, the entire legend was proven to be fabricated. The the final owner or the current owner of the box wrote a book, but that book is out of print. And the article about the Dybbuk box's power in the LA Times is still very much read. And people have said, you know, I, I've, I've felt the, the power of this thing. I, I've had similar experiences just reading about it. And again, the, the, the entire history of the box, every story about it prior to its being sold from the, the, the person who created the legend was, was, whole, was created out of whole cloth. It was never real. So it begs the question of whether we are able to a certain degree to create phenomenon, whether we can, whether it's it's and maybe it's through collective will it gets stronger. I've wondered that about Slenderman. I've wondered if perhaps, perhaps through collective will and and belief, something has been able to come through and commandeer that. I was just going to mention that Slenderman because the case was back in the news and uh, and we had tweeted out something about it on the uh, Spooky South Coast Twitter feed at Spooky SC, and we were talking about uh, you know we were reading about in the story how the young girls said that they committed this crime. They were stabbing this classmate to appease Slenderman and that they actually thought that he lived in this mansion that was, you know, local to them. And so, I mean, even though it's a made up story, essentially now Slenderman exists because somebody believes in it and somebody's assigned this legend to it. And now it, that legend has grown and been adapted. So, you know, he exists now no differently than Santa Claus exists. 
Yeah, that, that's it. Or, or alternately, and this is something, this is a little more out there, but I had this thought when I first read about, of course, the, the horrible uh, events. I think was it was it in Wisconsin? Um, the attacks happened? I, I forget exactly where. I could find the story, I, but... That's right. I, 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 it was somewhere thereabouts, I believe. But I wondered if, if of course, you know, Slenderman was, was very, very publicly created on, on the Something Awful website. But I wonder if maybe that was the mechanism by which something very old is designed to be born. If it, if it somehow, by people creating this legend, by someone chiming in and saying, aha, and it's very old and it steals kids, I wonder if maybe there is something in one of these sideways worlds that manipulated its birth that way. It, and- you know, by the... I was going to say that's entirely it's entirely possible because it has kind of taken on a life of its own in such a short amount of time. Yeah, and, and, and there have been other other times, the you know, other things people have tried to create, which has not had that staying power. And so I always wonder if things that have staying power have that because they are they have some kind of elemental truth to it. And, and I mean, of course, I would not I would not stand behind this and say I one hundred percent believe it, but I think it's uh, for people in the field. I think it's absolutely worth considering. And and it just I just looked it up though it was Wisconsin, uh, but the the idea too is it's not just Slenderman that that can kind of play into that either. Uh, we've seen that happen with other legends like the Black Eyed Kids is something that has you know I when I first heard about it and I heard about David Weatherly's research and I thought it was a really creepy story and I thought it was worth kind of sharing. But I also in the back of my mind thought this could just be you know a legend that somebody's kind of coming up with and and putting out there. And we talked about it here on the show, and all of a sudden I get local callers that are calling in saying that they've seen them, and they've experienced them, and they've had the same type of experience. Well, I maybe that's exactly the same thing. Maybe somebody was kind of just messing around with us at some point, and it turned into an actual real entity, an actual real phenomenon. Yeah, that, again, that or this, these things have always been there waiting, and they used, they, they influenced someone to mess around to allow them entry. To they they you know to to influence someone to say oh yeah and then they had black eyes and uh, you know they had to be let in and and again it, it, to them it's a, it's a lark but really it's 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 that little the devil on your shoulder whispering in your ear and saying help me create this thing help me will this thing into being I mean Stephen King used to say that about his early books you know he said that he didn't sit down and craft the stories that they came to him in dreams and he basically just wrote about the dreams that he had and maybe that's the same type of thing you know these these stories are coming out because they're just using us to be the conduit for them absolutely that's uh and i mean i'm, I'm a, i was a big fan of, of early king I, I haven't read a lot of his stuff now but hold on we're just making oh, <laughs> hang on one second we're trying to make some some changes here we have we have to go on the radio, it looks like, apparently. Alright. So we're, we're on the, we're on WBSM airwaves now. Alright. So, <laughs> uh, welcome aboard everybody joining into the show. Uh, we are talking with our guest Brennan Store. He's the author of the new book, A Strange Little Place, and we are talking about his hometown of Revelstoke, British Columbia, and some of the paranormal phenomena that takes place there, as well as just kind of talking about the nature of some of this activity in general. Uh, the Red Sox are still going on though, Matt. It looks like on TV. So, maybe it just clicked over. 
See, this is the the problem with the YouTube streaming. We've got to figure this stuff out on the fly. And we could have the Red Sox pop on at any moment and bump us off. Cut cut us off the air. <laughs> yep, there's there's the Red Sox again. So let's let's uh let's go back to them. And we're still on YouTube as far as and we're going to put him in audition here, right? And there we go. All right, I think we're back. And I should bring the and leave these up, right? <laughs> this is great because we're still figuring this out. This is only the third week that we've actually done this, like streaming just over YouTube. So thank you for oh, being okay. patient as we learn on the fly here. Oh, hey, it's, it's all new to me, so if you, take your time. Well, and the the great thing about our local audience here, and I, I know that they're listening to the Red Sox, so I feel I feel kind of bad that we can't talk to, you know, the the direct people of the South Coast, but. You know, we have a good mixture of the same type of – there's a lot of the same element that you're dealing with in your town of Revelstoke or your hometown of Revelstoke because we have people who do not want to talk about paranormal stuff at all. We have people that will refuse to even acknowledge its existence until you get them kind of one-on-one, and they'll pull you aside and say, well, listen, I don't really believe in this stuff, but – and a lot of it has to do with the, the strong Portuguese influence in this area – it's something that they don't talk about publicly. Uh, but there always is kind of that moment when everybody, whether they believe it or not, they still have a story to share. Absolutely. And uh, that's, I, I, think that's, I love being in those situations where you can have time with people to really to establish that trust and then hear what they have to say because some of the things you hear are, well, they're really spectacular, to me at least, are spectacular. I'm still very much, I'm very much new to this. Again, I've only been in the field, I say in the field, I've only been aware of all these things for, I guess, four years now. I started in April 2012, but I'm still learning a mile a minute. I'll hear things and think, wow, I, I had no idea. And I, I just find it exhilarating to, to be taking these things in. Well, you mentioned that, you know, you, you hadn't really heard 95% of these stories, uh, growing up and, but at the same time, I mean, how much of a influence in the paranormal did you have? Going into this, how, how aware were you of it, and how much research into it had you done? Almost none. My when I was a kid, I, I liked to sit in the, the library at school and I would read my friends, you know, little 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 stories from the ghost books we had there. But mostly, my interest was Stephen King novels, horror movies, and, and that was it. I, I, it never occurred to me as a a real life phenomenon. It was just not something that not something I entertained. I just didn't seem to have room for that in my life between work and, and responsibilities. I just didn't think about it. So I, I went into this completely fresh. And in some ways that, that, that bit me in the butt because when I started the book, I had this idea that I was going to make a collection of ghost stories. And the more I read, you know, I read uh, John Keel, uh, to say David Weatherly, uh, I think Trevor James wrote They Live in the Sky, uh, all these things, you know, and, and I realized, man, I am way behind the curve because you've got people We've moved so far beyond ghost stories to these people trying to explain things. And I thought, man, this is, I'm not really adding a whole bunch here. So it was, uh, it was really, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, it was sobering because I realized that, you know, I would really have to entertain people. Otherwise, no one was going to give, uh, give much of a damn about these things. So that was, um, for, yeah, and I think that was just, again, me being new to the field. And what you're finding, though, it, and not only with with ghosts, but there's all types of other paranormal activity happening in Revelstoke as well. It, it runs the gamut of all the different types of activity that we put under the umbrella of paranormal. Oh, absolutely. Again, the, the UFO sightings alone, I think you could conceivably do a book 
uh, if you wanted to just focus on that, I, I don't think you'd have a very hard time at all uh, to write that. I, I just missed, unfortunately, there was a, um, a fellow who is a uh, leader of one of the religious communities in town who I am told had a lifetime of UFO experiences. And uh, unfortunately, he passed um, not a, a few years ago uh, before I had a chance. And again, unfortunately, for, for sec- doubly unfortunately, for, before I had a chance to speak with him. But from what I understand, he yeah, he had a lifetime of UFO experiences in Revelstoke. And because of his religious beliefs, he interpreted them as uh, demonic um demonic intervention, but it would have been fascinating to hear what he had to say. And, and certainly the there's a chapter called Whispers towards the end of the book, which contains all the one or two line descriptions of things that I, I couldn't really develop into whole stories, but came again from, from reliable sources and people who have no reason to make things up. Stories about disc-shaped craft passing overhead while a woman is out hanging out her laundry, or about lines of rotating lights appearing over the train tracks and then disappearing along the tracks when there's no train there. And uh, so you know, I think if you, on UFOs alone, you could, do a, you could do a small book, and maybe not even a small one. And from UFOs, if you go to Sasquatch, again, there was a real, I won't say glut, it was probably one of the, the, the lesser amounts of stories I found, but there was, again, a real presence of Sasquatch stories. And I actually thought that uh, I thought I'd be able to have more in the book, but unfortunately, some of the reports I found online the authors were not willing to have the mat- to allow me to adapt the material. Mm-hmm. They wanted it kept on their organization's website, which which I respect and I understand completely. So there are even more Sasquatch stories out there than are included in the book. There's actually a Sasquatch-related question that popped up in the chat room. Uh, Corey wants to know if you think there's a connection between Bigfoot sightings and railroad tracks and or utility corridors uh, in the area that you covered in the book. I don't know that I would make a direct connection between uh, Bigfoot and utility or railway corridors or utility corridors or railway. I, I wonder, I tend to think there's a bit of a connection between uh, Bigfoot sightings and paranormal activity in general. You know, I, I know John Keel was a big proponent of the, the ultra-terrestrial theory, and I, I, and, you know, which, which was, of course, his theory. And sometimes I wonder if there's some merit to that, because so many of these Bigfoot stories seem to have an element of high strangeness associated with them. You know, Bigfoot will, uh, even in Revelstoke, I, I have a story, which again, I don't think is in the book, where Bigfoot was seen, or a, a Bigfoot was seen crossing the highway, stopping a couple cars. And after it crossed the road, it simply stepped off the embankment on the other side and was gone. And people who got out of their cars to check found there was no body, there was no, nowhere it could have gone. It was a, a sheer drop down to a, uh, a rocky riverbank, but it, it, it was there and then it wasn't anymore. And I, I know some people like the nuts and bolts explanation of this, the, of a very strong prehensile animal who can who can make those kinds of escapes, but it just doesn't seem to fit the evidence. So I, I tend to think there is more of a, a paranormal F, um, connection to to Bigfoot than I do a uh, one two utility corridors. But then I don't have the data on that, so not Revelstoke at least. Well, and one of the other questions that we got too, and I want to make sure I get to this before uh, we run out of time, but. Uh, Chris wants to know about gremlins that uh, you mentioned in the book, uh, having people having encounters with gremlin type creatures, and, and what exactly were those types of encounters? Well, those encounters were more of an annoyance. Uh, the first one I heard about was uh, a woman who who came to me through a friend, and her husband had been adopted as a boy, but they eventually made contact with his birth mother, and uh, they would visit her from time to time. She lived in a neighboring town. 
And she would always joke, she had a lot of electrical problems with appliances around her home, and she would always joke that it was her gremlins. And so uh, eventually she she passed, and they went to the service. And uh, on their way home from the service, their truck broke down when they were driving back home to Revelstoke. And the husband joked, well, we must have got mom's gremlins. But as the days progressed, once they returned home, they found a number of electrical faults in their house. Things started malfunctioning, and it seemed to be in a progression. It started with the porch light, and then, say, for example, the television close to the door, and then further and further into the house, like like some dissonant wave was advancing. And they didn't know what to do. And the husband then said, okay, maybe we do have mom's gremlins. And they started seeing little shadow things, like shadow people, but just out of the corner of their eyes, almost like a little rat or a, a dog. But, but again, never actually seeing the animal itself, just this sensation of something very small skittering from one side to the other. And this continued, I believe, for a few weeks until the woman was working and happened to be telling the story, I believe, to a co-worker. And one of their customers heard, and this woman was from Ireland. And the woman said, oh, well, that's gremlins. You have gremlins. Hmm. And, of course, this woman was astounded. So she, she said to this woman, well, what do I do about it? And the Irish woman said, place a saucer of milk outside your door as an offering. That'll appease them. They'll go away. And the woman thought, well, this is kooky, but I'll try it. So she did. She, put, she took a saucer of milk, put it outside her door. And she said for three days, that saucer sat there. Now, she lives in an area. She has two cats of her own. She lives in an area where other stray cats regularly come through. Of course, we have you know the odd coyote that comes through the, through the city, bears. That saucer of milk was untouched for three days. And wow. You, you would think at least one of the other cats would have gone near it. That's it. No, it was untouched. And believe it or not, the disturbance has stopped. See, that's so weird. All those weird, like, folksy solutions for things, uh, you know, you hear them and you think to yourself, these are just old wives' tales. But then you got to think, in the end, you're focusing on something that sounds weird to believe in uh, to begin with. So maybe the solution is just as weird as the is the problem. That's it. I mean, if, if belief is the door, if belief opens the door, then maybe belief can close it too. Certainly, I uh, you know I, I've read lots of fairy stories about things like um, how and in so many stories, even in uh, paranormal stories, these the creatures themselves don't seem to like iron. They don't like um, like uh, yeah iron the metal and. So I, I've actually taken to putting stones around, uh, iron-rich stones around entry port places to my house. So I have uh, pieces of magnetite, in, you know, above my front door. Pieces of magnetite uh, in front of the windows. And, and again, I, my, you know, my friends have grown used to it, and it's it's a bit of a, a chore explaining it to new people. But it feels a lot more secure. And again, that could just be. My, the power of my own belief, but I thought, well, you know, it seems to work for the uh, for the storybooks. I may as well give it a try. Well, one of the other aspects that always worries me about when you encounter these different types of creatures is, you know, it's one thing to be able to say we're having ghost experiences, we're having even UFO sightings and, and Bigfoot experiences, but when you start getting into some of these other, you know, legendary mythological creatures, it's almost like that's opening a door that you really want to keep closed. You know, in today's society, 
we can kind of accept ghosts a little bit more than we used to be able to, and maybe even accept cryptids a little bit more than we can could. But when you start talking about things that are, you know, opening the door for things like gremlins, fairies, trolls, all these other type of creatures, you start to wonder if you really are living in a fantasy world, and and if there really is some sort of other world bleeding into ours. Well, that's it. Sometimes I wonder if. We have taken because typically we, we look at things like belief in fairies, for example, and we, we we strip that right back to the studs. We say, well, that we we believed in this because uh, we believed in little winged fairies because there were disturbances, there were problems with with mechanical things, and so we just said, you know, it's because of the fairies, and and it's it's a completely rational explanation. But I wonder if maybe we're stripping that back too far. Maybe that the the wings and the tutu and, and all the, and and the uh, the Tinkerbell thing—that's the embellishment. But if we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater by assuming that there was never anything. Right. That there, there and, might be a, a plausible, you know, at least a somewhat more realistic version of that that was the basis for that fantastical. That's it. And, and I, I, I wonder if by – and this is a concern of mine sometimes. Again, not often because most of the time in my day-to-day jobs, I, I just don't think about these things. But I, I periodically am concerned that – Looking for these things, looking at these things, encourages them to look back at me, and that's that's something that sits uncomfortably with me. In, in fact, I was in New Orleans last May, and I, I ran into uh, as, as the, the sun had set. It was nighttime. I was cruising around, just walking around the quarter, just keeping an eye, looking at things. I, I was in town for the remote viewing conference because I'd heard about it in a podcast, and it sounded like a fun way to spend uh, some vacation time. But uh, I was cruising around the quarter late one night, and Jackson Square, behind there, uh, after, after dark, it's when fortune tellers set up their, their card tables and their candles, and they, mm-hmm. they read people's fortunes. I happened to run into a fellow who was packing up his, his art. Uh, he, was, he sells it there during the day, and he does these really, really, I, I found very uh, engrossing splatter paintings uh, of, of Jesus on the cross. And again, I, I'm not much of a, I'm, I'm really not a Christian, but I found these really, really I was really drawn to these pictures as we got talking and eventually I told him why I was in town and that, that set the stage a little bit when he, he told me about some experiences he'd had. And then he asked me to tell him about something that happened to me. So I, I told him a little bit of, of, of this, one of my stories and he nodded his head and he sort of scratched his chin and he said, well, that's, he said, we have to be careful people like you and I, because we're drawn to push further into these places. I call the principalities. He said the dark places where living people aren't really meant to go, we're drawn there. And he said the problem about being drawn and pushing deeper into the principalities is the things that live there start to become aware of you. And he said that can be a very dangerous place to be for people who are not equipped. And so that's, that's something that it's, it's stuck with me. And I always hope that if I decide to keep pushing in, in that direction, which, which seems to be the case because these things find me no matter how much I resist it, that I am equipped properly to handle it. As our usual co-host and science advisor, Matt Moniz, who couldn't be here tonight, would say, you know, his mentor, uh, Maurice, taught him when he started doing this stuff 30 years ago, you know, he told him, for every step that you take toward the paranormal, it takes two steps toward you. And it certainly seems like that's the same path that uh, that you're talking about. Uh, absolutely. I mean, since beginning the book, again, I went from having no real dramatic paranormal experiences that I can think of to seeing shadow people, to seeing these mysterious blue flashes 
in multiple locations, which this is actually something John Keel described in, I believe, the Mothman prophecies. He described seeing these blue flashes, and, and he said it always predated some, or presaged some, some change in his life. And certainly when I think back on this, because again, I saw these flashes before I ever read that book, these flashes occurred before major changes in my life. But mm. this is not something that had ever happened to me prior before, prior to opening that door and expressing an interest in the, the world beyond the physical. You know, and it's it's funny too that you had mentioned you know Jackson Square and being in New Orleans in, in May because I was in New Orleans in May uh, for a different event. And as I'm walking through Jackson, you can kind of feel like there's just something. Even though a lot of the people who set up there, you know, you you want to remain skeptical about whether or not they actually have abilities. But as you are going through there, you can kind of feel that things are different there. I mean, things are different kind of all over there, but things are different there. Oh, absolutely. New Orleans, for me, was, was fascinating. I've been there twice in my life, and both times, within 24 hours of arriving, I am being told about a missing persons case. Wow. Yeah, and it, uh, it's the first time with 2008. I, I actually got there via Amtrak. I, I had a year of uh, aimless wandering, so I, I ended up taking the Empire Builder from Seattle to Chicago, and then the city of New Orleans from Chicago to New Orleans. And I got off the train in midday, it was humid, humid, humid in, in October and August, and I, I don't know what I was thinking about being there in the summer, but I, I didn't know any better. And after checking into my hotel, I, I walked around to a bar and sat down, ordered a beer, and got talking to the barmaid. And she seemed sad. And, and I asked her, you know, what's what's wrong? She looked at me and she said, well, earlier today, I had a group of kids in here looking for their friend. And they were in here last night partying. Their friend got in someone's car to buy drugs and he didn't come back. Now, this girl was from Montana. Originally, she had moved to New Orleans about four years prior, and she just sort of looked at me with this dull stare, and she said, that kid's not coming back. And she looked away, and she said, you know, at least back home, if someone kills you, they've got a reason. And then uh, last last year, I was there again there in May, and I ended up uh, I ended up staying with a young lady who works for part-time for a private investigation firm. And she told me about a young man from the University of Texas who had come to town. Uh, he had His uncle had dropped him off at a motel by the freeway, and he had intended to, he was meant to take a bus out of the Greyhound station the next day to go visit family in Arkansas. He never made it to the Greyhound station, and three months later, no trace had been found. And she said no trace was likely to. He's just gone. And so that, that's been really instructive for me on how to behave in New Orleans. And how to very you know watch myself because it just seems like a place where you can find anything you want to as long as you don't mind running the risk of not waking up the next morning. Oh, absolutely! And you said you went there for the remote viewing conference, and I heard that you only have to go to that one time, and then you can still just go back every year without having to actually travel. <laughs> you still have to pay the conference fee, though. <laughs> yeah, right. The minute you pop in, there's somebody there to charge your aura, you know. So you're yep. you're paying yep. one you're, way or another. Your spirit MX. That, I mean, I'm not to, not to, uh, sidetrack the conversation a little bit, but like, I, I only spent a couple of days in New Orleans. It's already my favorite place in the world. You know, just those couple of days that I spent. And that's the, that's not even just because of the awesome day drinking walking down the street. <laughs> that's just an added benefit to everything else that goes on there. So, uh, getting, getting back to, to Revelstoke, which of course is the focus of, of Brennan's book, A Strange Little Place, when, you're collecting all these stories. Was there one particular story? Maybe there was a couple, but was there something that really kind of 
uh, sent a shiver down your spine and one that stuck with you? It's a thing. It's a story that replays in your mind when you're laying in bed trying to get ready to go to bed at night. Absolutely. And that story, I always like to say, is a story of missing time. In the, uh, it took place in what's called Rogers Pass, which is the the highway leading east out of the city. And that story, I was not told personally. That story I actually found online from another researcher. And I tried to locate the person who had submitted the story. And uh, I believe they still live in, in the town uh, where the story originated, in the town of Golden. I put ads in the paper. I bought a 1-800 number. And I was contacted by someone, but I missed the call. And when I called them back, they claimed to have been responding to another ad. Hmm. And I, I really think they just lost their nerve. But that person was their job, part of their job, and I don't know what their job was, but part of their job was to leave the town of Golden, which is 90 minutes east of Revelstoke, drive through the mountains west, stay overnight in Revelstoke, and then continue on the following morning to some point further west. That was the driving was part of their job. Well, one night they left Golden at the usual time, roughly 10:30 at night, and headed west towards Revelstoke. Now that road is quite treacherous. It's been recognized as one of the most dangerous in Canada during the winter. Uh, there's one particular corner known as School Bus Corner because of a, a fairly serious school bus crash there. And uh, years ago, there was a tour bus, a very, very serious tour bus crash in what are called the snowsheds. And those are structures, concrete structures built over the road to protect from avalanches. The area is, is very, very dangerous in the winter thanks to avalanches. Of the roughly 700 avalanche-related deaths in Canada recorded from the late 1800s—I'm sorry, the late 1700s—up till I want to say 2009, when the government did the study, 200, I believe, 225 of them occurred on that stretch of mountain prior to 1911. It's mm -hmm. an extraordinarily dangerous place. So I say this to illustrate how much attention you have to pay to that road. And so this fellow was driving that road. There was one semi truck ahead of him, and he was paying attention. That semi truck went around the corner. And a moment later, the man's car followed. And at that point, he expected the road to begin ascending up to the snowsheds. But when he went around the corner, the road instead descended. And he felt this wave of disorientation. And then it continued, and he couldn't figure out what was happening until he saw a sign that said Revelstoke, 30 miles. Well, he'd only been on the road maybe 20 minutes. As far as he knew, he thought, there's no way that this hour-and-a-half drive is, is over already. I can't be that close to Revelstoke. When he looked at his clock, over two hours had passed, and he had no recollection of any of it. Now, again, he thought, well, maybe I just went on autopilot. He thought, maybe I, I tuned out, but that road is a very difficult road to tune out on. And so he, he got to Revelstoke, and he stayed overnight, as he always did, and went on his way the next morning. And he maybe could have continued to believe that he had just gapped out, if not for the crippling fear that soon followed. He was, after that point, unable to drive that road by himself, daytime or nighttime. He did it once and suffered panic attacks on, uh, uh, if there was not a car within visual range of him, if there was not someone else within visual range. He, he felt himself just consumed by panic. And eventually he started taking a different route, which is not easy because you're talking about a two to three times the length. But he started doing that so he could not be on that section of the Trans-Canada Highway. And part of that was because of the nightmares. And then these nightmares started happening shortly after that night. 
and have, as I understand it, continued to the present day. And in those nightmares, he's driving that road. It's nighttime, and he sees the taillights of the semi-truck ahead curve around the, the curve around the corner, except then they come back, and they settle over top of his car, bathing it in red light, and he feels a crushing pressure on his chest. And then he panics and wakes up. And that story, of all the stories I wrote in the book, of all the stories I've heard since then in, in Revelstoke, in New Orleans, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in, in Victoria, no story has disturbed me that much in the writing. Because every time I sat down to write it, I felt as though I were being observed. I'm not saying I was. Right. But I'm saying that every time I sat down to write it, I started writing in the Denver airport uh, on my way home from a, from a vacation and I finished it in my apartment in Victoria. And every time, if I wrote that by myself, it was insidious and, and got in my head. And I started to panic because I was certain that someone somewhere was watching me. And so that story, the story of, of I call the man Henry Talbot, is the one that, that stays with me the most. And, you know, obviously it sounds like he has, you know, some sort of a, a PTSD from what he experienced, but, you know, to have that kind of that same emotion, that same fear uh, kind of translate into you as the chronicler of that as well. It's not only the fact that they're watching you, though, but it's the fact that you are now the conduit for that story and the conduit for that. So now somebody else is going to have that same experience. You know what I mean? It's almost like you're playing a part in whatever that is. Uh, just as you know, you felt like somebody might have been manipulating the Slenderman legend. You're kind of being the conduit for for what will eventually become that legend. Absolutely. And uh, recently, I told someone the story of a a very unusual dream I've had because I, I've, I've this is something that, that is sort of developing. That Revelstoke appears to have a common a common geography of dreams, where it, it appears really? differently in in certain people's dreams, but it is different in the same way. And I told this someone this particular dream, and he tells someone about a dream, and ordinarily they don't care. You know, I, I woke up and there was Bob there, but Bob had red hair instead of green hair, and, and, and no one cares, right? But I, you tell this story, this particular story, and, and they said it has a power, it, and it feels like there is something behind it, more than something more than, than simply it was just a dream. And, and I believe the story of missing time, I believe it's the same thing. I believe you can tell a ghost story, and yeah, it's a ghost story, and someone saw a ghost, and it's there. But I believe there is a real power to that story that extends beyond mere words. I believe it connects to something which is very powerful. So, I mean, pure speculation on my part here, and, and I'm asking you to kind of follow me down that same path, but if you have people who are reporting differences in the dream, and but the same differences from person to person, is it possible that they're not dreaming, that they're being taken somewhere else in their sleep? And... and that is something I'm approaching myself and, and wondering about because the differences so far it's only a handful of people, but still these are similarities which were not shared beforehand and which are in some cases display in all cases are describing places that do not exist in the town as it stands have never existed there but uh, people are 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 feeling the same thing and and I, I can relate the story of, of the dream to you if you like that that would be great good. So in, in the stream, I am, I'm gassing up my car at a filling station that, in reality, long ago ceased to be a filling station. It's now a, a rustic furniture store. But in the dream, it's still a gas station, and I'm gassing up my car. And that gas station is next to a food store 
which is they're both on a hill, and there's a steep embankment behind them, which leads down to a park. In the dream, I'm gassing up my car, and these two children run out from behind the gas station. And I recognize them. Uh, my family used to run a store in Revelstoke. We used to operate a, a delicatessen. And so in the dream, I recognize them as customers, former customers. And so we chat, and I, I ask how their parents are doing. And they say, well, their parents are well. And they say, well, you, you, you should visit them. They'd love to see you. I tell the kids, well, get, sure, absolutely. Get in the car. I'll, I'll drive you. I can save you the ride. And the kids say, oh, no, no, let's, let's walk. And the little boy smiles, and he says, I made a path. And I, I thought, oh, you, you made a path, eh? He says, yeah, I made a path. So I said, sure, lead the way, kid. So we follow them, and they lead us behind the, the service station. And sure enough, I, I remember there was a staircase, and that staircase was made of wood planks set into the side of the hill with what looked like stamped tin plates in the center of them. And the railing was a heavy chain hung between posts. Now, the staircase was so steep, I couldn't see where I was going. I was so focused on my feet, I, I couldn't see what was around me. But I remember at one point hearing rushing water. And suddenly I was, I was at the bottom, and I stepped through a hedge, finding myself on a dirt road, which ran to the left and right in front of me. Across from me was more foliage, and the kids were ahead of me. They ran off to the right. And I watched. They ran up a small rise and then disappeared to the right again. So I started walking, and I stepped over. I remember a tiny wooden bridge made up of thin slats of wood. I stepped across this thing. There must have been running water underneath it. And just as I stepped across, I saw a man cross from the left side of the road to the right. And I thought, I know him from somewhere, but I couldn't, I couldn't place where. I continued along the dirt road, eventually got to the top of the little rise, and I looked to my left, and I realized I was looking at Revelstoke, but I was much further away than I should have been. And the road next to me dropped out of sight, and then joined up with Revelstoke at some point in the distance. And I thought, I know every road out of the city. That's not one of them. I don't know that road. That doesn't make sense. But I thought, well, the kids are calling me. I, I better go. I turned around, and the road descended behind me out of sight again into a long mountain valley. And I could see the kids running down this road. I, I started walking down the hill. And the sun was setting by this point, so the shadows were starting to lengthen. The road was lined with small huts, each of which, most of them had the door open. And they appeared to be tiny, almost like thatched roof cottages. And in each one of them was a bizarre array of furniture. There were old wooden stoves with brand new, with brand new fridges, or uh, old cast iron kettles with next to a microwave. And in, in a jumble that didn't make any sense. And there, in one of them, just for a moment, I thought I saw a woman at the stove. But it seemed like I could see through her, and then she was gone. And the kids were calling, so I, I just kept following them. They had stopped at a house at the end of the road. It was one of the larger houses in, in a long strip. Beyond the house, the valley continued far into the distance, and the shadows had started to gather at the far end of the valley. It was getting dark. Their parents were there, and we talked. And they, they asked how I was doing. I asked how they were doing, but they were very evasive on what they'd been doing and how they were. They wanted to know about me. They encouraged me to just talk about me. Then they invited me in for dinner. So I, I agreed. I went in, and they, they, they said, we, we had just 
just decided we just sat down. So please, please join us. And there was a long dining room with wood paneling on one side, and on the other was floor to ceiling windows that looked down the valley. And by this point, the sun had set, and it was getting quite dark. I could see a river on the left, again, leading off into the distance past the vanishing point. I sat down to this this feast, and I I distinctly recall there were these chocolate chip cookies. They had enormous chocolate chunks in them, and I I have a real weakness for chocolate chip cookies. And I really wanted to eat these things, but for whatever reason, this little voice in my head said, don't do that. Don't eat them. And so I didn't. And the family never questioned me. They just set about eating their own food. After the meal, they asked for my help moving the tables because they said they had guests coming. So I helped them move the tables, cleared the dining room, and the guests began to arrive. By this point, the moon had risen and was full, and the entire dining room was lit by moonlight. The guests arrived, including a a short matronly woman who looked a lot like the shadow person or the outline of a person I had seen in the hut. Everyone began to dance, and as they danced, they would pass through the moonlight, and as they passed through the moonlight, they became transparent. And it was at that point I realized, all these people are dead. I'm in the land of the dead, and the reason I didn't want to eat their food is because if you eat the food of the dead, you have to stay. And they danced faster and faster and faster, and then I woke up. Wow. That's, uh, that's and pretty intense. It's it's an intense dream. And so I, I related that story. Uh, I, I, I sat on it thinking I thought, well, that's a really crazy dream. Maybe I'll make a short story out of that once if I start writing short stories. Mm-hmm. But then I was talking to a friend of mine last Christmas. And, I, again, I had not mentioned the dream. We were simply discussing, uh, you know, how we'd been doing. We hadn't seen each other in a while. And he said, you know, I keep having these strange dreams. And I, I said, well, what kind of dreams? He said, in these dreams, there's a, a, a valley just behind those mountains. And we, were, we were standing next to the river, and he pointed across the river at, the, at these hills uh, below Mount Begbie. He said, just beyond those hills in my dream, there's a long valley. It's like a fantasy. There's a river, and there's streams. And he said, I keep dreaming about it, but it's, it's not really there. So, and again, I filed that away. Interesting stuff not really relevant but one night i was out for a drive as i as i like as i tend to be at night and it clicked the position of that valley as described by him is exactly the point from which i observed revelstoke in my dream wow his his valley was in the same place as mine and that again could write off as coincidence Mm -hmm. except we also both discovered we both dream about a flooded-out road south of town, which doesn't really exist. And that road sometimes is, is run over with water, sometimes it's not. But it winds through the mountains and is not really there. Now, even that you could write off as, well, two people, you're just having similar experiences, maybe they're different, but you're kind of making it sound that way. Until I told a third person about the dream, the dream with the children. And just as I got to the stairs, this woman said, the railing is a large chain strung between wooden posts, isn't it? And I said, yes. And she looked at me and said, Brennan, how do I know that? And I didn't have an answer. 
I mean, there, re- there really is no answer except for the fact that you've all been drawn to this same place. That's it. This place that does not exist in the Revelstoke we see every day, but appears to be there in some in some version of it is still there. Now the question becomes if you can find a way to get back. Well, that's it. And I, I've wondered and I've tried and I, I not with any uh, great sincerity, I must admit. So I'm hoping that maybe if I try again, but perhaps I'll try the remote viewing skills I learned at that uh, at that at that conference. But I would love to know more, and I, I'm hoping that people will come forward. And of course, the problem with people coming forward at this point is they've heard the stories. Right. So it's it's very easy to say you heard the story. You're just feeding into that. So I'm hoping that other locations, which and there are other locations I, I've I've dreamed about, which I'm keeping close to the chest in case other people come forward. But it, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see whether other people do. I was just going to ask you that. Is, I was just going to ask you if, you know, like, you know, uh, like when the police are tracking a, a serial killer, you know, that there's always a few details they don't release to the press so that they can confirm when somebody does come forward and claim to be that killer. You know, did you keep some details back so that you can confirm? But it sounds like you did. It sounds like you kept kept a few things out of the story so that, you know, you'll have a confirmation when somebody does come at you with it. Absolutely. And, and these stories, as a matter of fact, this is all new. This happened after the book went to press. So this is something that's, again, still developing. As a number of the stories in the book still are. I mean, there are historical hauntings, but a number of them are also very, very new and are still ongoing at, at this point. So it's uh, it's an active place still. Well, I mean, I'll just throw one suggestion out there, and I'm sure it's something that you thought about already, but I'm sure you're familiar with lucid dreaming. I am. So maybe that's something that would be worth trying the next time you're back in Revelstoke to see if, you know, once you are dreaming lucid, well, actually, you probably want to practice it before you get there, but, you know, when you do it and you get there, you can say, all right, now that I'm here, I'm going to go out and find this this place. I'm going to go out and find this valley again. Yeah, and, and I think that's something I'm, I'm going to attempt. Uh, it's certainly, um, and actually, I tried, I went behind this this former gas station, you know, in in my waking hours one night as I was going back and forth between my house and a friend's house, and... You know, as soon as I got with just behind the place, I, I thought there's a small footpath that goes down to the park, which is actually the park where my niece claims to have seen the ghost in the tree. I considered trying to go down that footpath to see what would happen, if anything. And at that moment, my phone rang, and it was a friend of mine. And that friend said, hey, uh, for some reason, I thought I should check in on you. What are you up to? Weird. And I told her, and she said, yeah, don't do that. Hmm. So... Who, know, who knows? Yeah, that's a good reason not to when, when something yep. like that happens. That seems compelling to me. Well, you had mentioned, you know, the, uh, that story happening and then getting all these others since the time the book has come out. Do you feel like there's going to be a follow-up already? Do you, are you already starting to get enough stories that you think you could, you know, explore this again somewhere down the line? Um, I, I would like to think so. You know, either an expanded second edition or even, yeah, second book entirely. It's, it's hard to say. I, I would love to do another book in another location. I, I find myself irresistibly drawn to Los Angeles. So I would love to be able to do a book on that place. But uh, if more Revelstoke is, um, if Revelstoke stories keep coming, then there's a very strong chance that uh, there could be a second book. Of course, depending on this book, uh, providing this book is popular enough to uh, warrant a sequel. 
Well, I mean, I'm certainly, uh, after reading through it and, and just some of the stories that we've teased a bit here tonight, when people pick up the book and, and they hear more of these stories, I think they're going to want to know what happens as a result of these stories getting out into the world because that will have an influence on what goes back on in Revelstoke. So I think that that will be something that's worth following up alone, just seeing you know how much more stuff comes into the light because these stories are out there now. Absolutely, and I, I'm very eager to see how that how that pans out. And if you do end up going out to L.A., I, I do have a friend who is very well-versed in a lot of the ghost history of L.A. that can probably help you out with some stuff out that way. Oh, I, w- I would certainly take up on that. I, again, I'm just, I've been, I've only been in the city twice, the first time in October last year, but there's something's been calling me there for years. And I finally got there and it feels, it feels like home in a way that most places don't. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I've recognized the, uh, <laughs> the dangers of the place, but still it, it calls to me. So I'm wondering if, uh, if that might be, uh, there might be something there waiting for me in terms of, uh, a project. See, it's weird. That's I felt like kind of the opposite when I was out there. I was like, you yeah, know, this place is nice to visit, but I definitely wouldn't want to hang around here too long. But you know, New Orleans had that effect on me, where it was like, this is a place where I could I could be permanently. Ah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, that New Orleans was was a bit much for me. The the gal I stayed with described it as being like the Wild West with with great relish, and, and I thought, no, that's that's not me at all. <laughs> well, see, I guess we're just uh, I guess we're just polar opposites, you and I. But that's all right because we can get along anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I thank you very much for joining uh, us tonight and sharing with us about A Strange Little Place. And you can pick up the book now. Uh, it's available from Llewellyn Worldwide. It's available, I assume, wherever books are found. You can get it online. And you can go to largelythetruth.com to follow Brennan and his work. Uh, is that probably the best way for everybody to, to follow you and to find out more about you? Yeah, I would say yeah, my website, largelythetruth.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at largelythetruth. Uh, and yeah, the book is available uh, for U.S. Uh, listeners. The book is available through Amazon and Barnes and Noble. For those in Canada, it's available through Chapters Indigo and Amazon. And if anyone's listening from overseas, it will be available in uh, in England and Europe on September 1st through Amazon and I believe Waterstones. That's all. And you know, I, I just I'm getting this feeling, and, and I know that we've talked about Keel a bit tonight. I'm just kind of getting the feeling that this book is going to be. You know, like the John Keel, what John, this, this book's going to be like what Keel did for Point Pleasant. I think you're going to be doing for Revelstoke. And whether or not that means you can come home at Thanksgiving or not, I don't know. But, well, actually, do you even, do you even celebrate Thanksgiving? We do. Absolutely. All right. In October rather than uh, November, but we do. So when you go back, people are going to be like, hey, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thanks, Jerk. No, but that's how you know, so. that's, that's, you know you did your job right if that's the way that, uh, if that's the response. That's it. I, I've been annoying people all my life. I may as well do it in a productive way now. There you go. All right, well, Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, it was a great conversation. We look back, back, on, back, look forward to having you back on somewhere down the line to talk about some more of these stories and whatever else you come across in your future work. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right, have a great night. That is Brennan Store, the author of A Strange Little Place. Pick it up wherever books are found. Uh, we are just about out of time for this week's show. It looks like we did not get on the air at all because of the Red Sox. So I'm glad that we have this YouTube streaming option, Matt Costa. This is, this is going to save right. us. This is fun. Because if the Red Sox end up making the playoffs, I get a feeling that if they do get in, it's going to be a long playoff run for them. They're either going to flame out and not make the playoffs or they'll make the playoffs and go deep. That's just the, the feeling that I get, which means, you know, we won't be on the air because of all the games, so it's good to have this as an option, as an alternative to be able to still broadcast the show. Right, it's nice. And we, everybody still gets to hang out on the YouTube chat room and watch the video feed and all that stuff. So right, it seems like it was uh, pretty active tonight, which is I'm pretty happy about. Yeah, which, you know, it's one thing if it's 
during a live show, sometimes it doesn't always happen. Right. But and, uh, Chris is doing a wonderful job of uh, uh, make sure uh, he's tweeting things out as well. Yeah. Thank you so to everybody. Follow us on Twitter. Everybody that follows us at SpookySC, that participates in the hashtag SpookyLive, that participates in the chat room, thank you all for making the show great and interactive fun. We'll be back next week with another show. Uh, of course, we'll be back each and every Saturday night with another show. Next week, we'll be talking with Dr. June Pulliam about ghosts in popular culture and legends. So that's going to be a great topic as well. Where uh, A listener messaged me earlier and said, you guys are doing a great job, and Chris gets all the credit for that. He's been the one that's bringing all these great guests our way. So that does it for this week's show. I feel like I was about to hit the legal ID, but I don't have to because we, right. we we can do whatever we want. Yes. We're not on the radio. We could drop an F-bomb if we want, but I'm not going to no. because I don't want YouTube to start marking it explicit and scaring off the young kids. Uh, but I will say this. Uh, Chris has been the one that's been bringing all these guests to the table. He's been doing a fantastic job getting everything booked and finding, you know, the, the topics that we want to cover. We don't want everything to just kind of be about the paranormal research community and about, you know, what, what device is coming out that we want to talk about and what, what's that? What, what am I looking at? Am I looking at the wrong camera? Oh. No, no, I'm getting to that. What show's not over yet, man. I made a promise. I know. And we will <laughs> just, keep I that. just didn't want to forget because we were on last that, week. We will keep that promise. I'm, the show's not over. And, uh, but, so, you know, th- there's a lot of these larger topics that we discuss a lot of the times. And there's a lot of these topics that we discuss that's very kind of niche for just paranormal researchers and investigators. And Chris and the listeners have always been telling us, like, we love it when you just focus on smaller things and when you focus on more creepy and universal stuff. And so there's definitely going to be an effort to do a lot more of that coming forward in the future. We're getting, you know, 10 years in, we're getting back to our roots. That's what I want to do. I want to keep us kind of grounded and make us something that's accessible to everybody and that you don't have to feel like, you know, where you have to be in the community, in the research community to be able to enjoy the show. So hopefully we're doing a better job of that. And, and Chris is certainly helping with the guests that he's been bringing to the table. And we'll continue to strive to do that as we get ready for year 11. It's only a couple months away. We'll hit our 11th anniversary and we'll hit our 500th episode. That's cause we're at what, 468 tonight? Yes. Do you think, did you ever think they would let us come here 468 times? No, and do I just this? thought maybe four episodes. I, I, I would have been surprised That's if that. we made it to the first summer. I, but I, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of faith in me. I knew you would be fine with the production and all that stuff. I knew you would take to that, and you did. You did a fantastic job. But I figured I would be the one that would get us booted off there. <laughs> and surprisingly, I didn't. So we'll just keep hoping that streak keeps up. Right. And so uh, what we do want to do tonight when we close out the show is Matt had mentioned this. But we've been asking for a long time. A lot of people have asked us, you know, how come you got rid of the original theme song? The original theme song was actually licensed music. You had actually found that when we first started doing the show. Yeah, uh, it was like a mashup of uh, a few different um, songs, which was allowed on the uh, on the AM airwaves. Right, because we have we have licensing that allows us to use right. We can use uh, pieces of songs yeah, yeah. and. But uh, it did not transfer over well to uh, YouTube. And technically, so. I mean, if anybody ever asked me this, I'd probably say, I'd probably deny that we knew. Mm. But technically, we were kind of breaking the law by podcasting it, right? 
I mean, I'm um, not sure how the whole fair use thing works. We uh, we don't make money off the podcast, off the show, so we're I, not. I don't. I don't. I think it's a. I think it's part of the fair use. I think but it's, it, it's still. Use? It's still. Uh, YouTube is very strict with their copyrights. Well, I just meant podcasts. You know, before we went to the YouTube thing, uh, we well, weren't really it concerned. It wasn't the whole song, so it's like we weren't concerned about it with the podcast, but yeah. we became concerned with YouTube yeah. because YouTube is like I think the, the guy would be cool with it. Oh yeah, yeah. I definitely think so. <laughs> but YouTube was right. like kind of his his uh, record company may may not be no, but YouTube is like boom, like you put up a copyrighted song. Your video's down. Exactly. Or, you know, you're not making money off that video, which we don't make any money off of our videos. The, they're all monetized, but we don't make any money off of them. We're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> we need somebody to guide us with YouTube revenue generation. We need somebody to guide us with making s- some really good high-quality apps. We, we always need somebody helping us with search engine optimization. Folks, if these are in your wheelhouse and you enjoy the show. Please feel free to donate your Way to back services on the air. to us. Right. <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, we, we we figure these things out as we go along. And so, one of the things that we realize is that it's probably better if we don't put licensed music in the show because we want it to be able to exist out there. You know, like our our great fans in Germany often have the show blocked if we have licensed music because Germany just doesn't allow them to remove remove the music. They have to remove the whole video. So. They're very stern over there. We're losing out on an entire country <laughs> when we use licensed music. So we've been asking people to submit original mm-hmm. music that, you know, they haven't already sold the rights to and that they own. And, and we love being able to feature new and upcoming artists too as well. I mean, that's what's great about this is we have a great worldwide reach. Why don't we use it and why don't we help spread the create? Cause we have a very creative audience. And All right. So, so why not spread some of that around and, 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 Use this as a platform to help feature some of what they're doing as well. So what we want is we want people to submit to us their own license, their own unlicensed music. So if you have an original composition or maybe, maybe you're really talented and creative and you want to make a song about spooky South Coast, that'd be <laughs> nobody, I don't think anybody's ever done that, right? I don't think so. We've had artwork done and we've had videos done. I don't think anybody's Someone ever done that. Someone was supposed song. to make a rap. Was that like some friends of yours? Or? Yeah, we, yeah. We were going to have, uh, uh, they, I loud, mean, one of them. Loud Neighbors or something? Yeah, Loud Neighbors. But uh, yeah. Early, Ado- remember that, yeah. early Adopted is yeah. still out there making records, so maybe he could <laughs> make one for us. But uh, he was part of Loud Neighbors. But, we, you know, we want to give you guys out there and, and all of you folks who support us so well, we want to give you a chance and support some of your efforts as well. So if you have original music, send it to us. You can send it to Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, but Matt Cost is the one that really can coordinate all this stuff because, you know, you're just better at this stuff than I am, remembering to do things. <laughs> Even though it took you two uh, weeks to remember on this one. But, uh, but uh, so we do have an original composition that we'll close out the show with tonight. It's uh, it's by Adrian Chisholm. He's the singer for the band Break. I'm sorry, Bring the Noise, is the name of his band, and you can find out all about them if you go to Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash big boss entertainment company. That's facebook.com slash big boss ENTCO. You can also check them out on YouTube and find Adrian himself on Facebook. Uh, but this is an original composition called Glass. And we are going to close out the show by playing this. And if you want to check it out, uh, again, go to their Facebook page, go to their YouTube and you will be able to find out everything about 
bring the noise and about Adrian Chisholm. So thank you, Adrian, for submitting this. And to anybody else, again, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. If you want to submit some original music for us to play, you can upload it to YouTube and just send us a link. You can send us the MP3 file, whatever works for you. We can figure out how to make it work on our end as well. Uh, so as before we play this, I'll say goodbye to everybody, and I'll say that for Matt, for Matt, for Chris, for Stephanie, I'm Tim, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. And let me just give me one second here because let me avoid the feedback. Turn off the YouTube sound there. There, Okay. And uh, so, yeah, we want you all to stay spooktacular, and we will talk to you next week.